On today's show, we have Eric Kriske, the co-founder and CEO of Bideli. We are going to discuss details about the company and team along with any plans on the roadmap. Bideli saves you money and helps businesses increase sales, reduce fees, and eliminate fraud with next generation payments and gift cards. Eric, thank you for coming on today. Why don't you give some insights into your background and how you started? Sure, Jill. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, my background's computer science. Born and raised in Calgary, Canada. Did my computer science degree at University of Calgary. I started Bidali in 2018 with one of my other couple other co-founders after being in the crypto space since about 2015. And it was really, I'd heard about the Bitcoin white paper a few times, been super interested in macro economics. I think on my Twitter bio, I've got a closet economist because it's always been super interesting to me and where money came from and how the systems developed over time. And crypto is kind of this perfect marriage of computer science and, and macro econ. And then in 2015, we were trying to pay people internationally because we were trying to hire developers that were familiar with our open source tech and found amazing people in Nigeria, Venezuela, Argentina, Ukraine, Iran, even we had contributors from at that time, like I didn't even know really how sanctions worked. I didn't know, you know, that I couldn't just hire somebody from Iran. And like, so we tried to pay a bunch of these people and we went, Oh, we actually can't. Like, this is crazy. So this is before transfer wise, now wise was more popular. I mean, the options were basically Western Union or bust. So. You know, this was around the same time that I came back around to Bitcoin because I'd heard about the white paper when it first came out and kind of kept hearing about it, you know, Bitcoin pizza day and all these things, these kind of momentous events throughout time. And the trigger for me was trying to pay these people internationally. We said, hey, why don't we try Bitcoin at this peer to peer cash system? And it didn't work that great, not going to lie. I mean, functionally, it worked in terms of sending value. But the biggest challenges we ran into were volatility, people, if they're earning all their income and that, they can't hold it all in a volatile asset that's going up and down quite so much. The user experience, especially at the time where the wallets was still really clunky in 2015. So it's really hard to get people up to speed on holding their Bitcoin safely. The ability to, to actually pay for real goods and services was really hard too. I mean, BitPay, I think, was pretty new then. So... It was really hard to pay for anything with Bitcoin at that time, you know, unless it was just an OTC, like over the counter type trade. And somebody's like, sure, I'll take your Bitcoins, kind of like Bitcoin Pizza, you know, or some of the other exchanges that were pretty new. So for payments, it just wasn't a good option. But that's when I started to go, okay, there might be something to this, this peer to peer money system. What else is happening in the space? And then I stumbled upon what was happening with Ethereum and with Stellar and then a few people thinking about stablecoins. So Tether was working on USDT on Omni. And so we just kind of kept tabs on the space. I started like most people, you know, going, well, this could be the future of money. Like I should probably invest in some of this. And then in 2017, we we're like, okay, this is really starting to actually gain some traction. These things are actually launching. We're starting to see faster, lower cost payments infrastructure like Rails. And we should probably, regardless of which way these currencies evolve, whether it's decentralized or private issued or central bank issued, you need the same core infrastructure if you want to actually use it as money. 
And that's what we started Bidali for, was really to build that infrastructure that enables this new version of digital currency to be used as a real monetary instrument. Turns out that's pretty easy to say and pretty hard to do. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some of the challenges that you're currently facing? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously the changing regulatory landscape. I've been heavily involved with regulators in Canada and now getting more involved here in Bermuda. In Bermuda, they've set up what I would consider as probably one of the best digital asset frameworks in the world. There's actual regulatory clarity, but beyond the regulatory, I mean, there's in order to gain mainstream adoption, especially for a payments mechanism, it needs to be trusted. And I think some of that trust can implicitly come from the technology itself, but some of that trust needs to come from the entity you're interacting with. And a lot of that has to do with being reg compliant too, right? So we recognize that there is basically these pieces that need to be built that were both technical as well as operational and regulatory. So from being specific, we run our own node infrastructure. We built our own blockchain API over top that enables us to transact with a bunch of different ledgers using the same common code. We built reg compliance infrastructure so that we can make sure that we're meeting or exceeding existing AML legislation and regulations. We started off even figuring out how to build all these pieces. We're like, before we can offer a payment system that's sort of like BitPay, but for stable coins, like, or more focused on stable coins, we need to understand all the pieces to be built. And so we said the best way to probably do that is to be our own merchant and be our own business. And so there's two theses. Like one was, how do we actually do that? Maybe we could run a drop shipping store or something like that. But then the other thing was we were going, well, how do we enable people to pay for real goods and services that they care about? In 2017, 2018, you could really only buy like crappy t-shirts and swag and stuff or like high-end real estate and yachts and stuff with crypto. Like it wasn't, you couldn't really do much in between. And so we settled on this idea as a proof of concept, which was to enable people to buy gift cards with crypto initially. And so that was kind of the bridge that's now snowballed a bit, which I'll touch on later. But that was the idea behind it was really just to figure out how to build this payments infrastructure. And so in order to even do that, we had to have our own blockchain infrastructure, our own reg compliance infrastructure. So we didn't get shut down by banks and like make sure we're being reg compliant and trusted. Right. Then we had to have our own reporting and compliance pieces for ourselves. So like, how do we do accounting and taxes? Like when you have volatile crypto assets and you're converting between different currencies and like, it's really complicated. And then on top of that, how do we make sure that we're not losing on volatility if we're trying to give people a guaranteed rate, especially on behalf of a merchant? So we had to come up with basically a trading, quoting, and settlement engine that determines kind of the best path to liquidity based on input currency A and output currency B. And that could be through multiple hops. It could be, you know, at one point we supported up to 200 different types of crypto assets. We've now pared it down to major stores of value and stable coins. But like in some of these cases, we had hops where you're going through multiple exchanges and potentially multiple currencies in order to find the best path to ultimately converting to fiat in a bank account. So it was a really complex stuff. And then we had our own traditional web 
two kind of APIs and stuff that sit on top of that, that power our e-commerce store and our mobile app and our developer integrations. So there's a lot of stuff. I've got a slide in one of my presentations that's like an iceberg. And there's a ton of stuff that we had to do underneath that you don't see in order to just make it as simple as what you do see on the surface. So for those that are not aware, how much of the operating cost actually goes to regulation and maybe the regulation kind of department management versus maybe development? I think we've been pretty lean, to be honest, on that front, just because I personally spend a lot of time reading legislation myself. Like, I'm not a lawyer, but I've, I've read, like, I've read laws for Canada, the States, Bermuda, Australia, UK, both their crypto asset laws, as well as their fintech legislation and banking legislation, and even in some cases, securities legislation. So Singapore as well, you know, like I've tried to really educate myself. So I'm not a lawyer. So we obviously use really good law firms that are very familiar with this. But part of the cost savings, I think, for us is like I'm doing the grunt work. <laughs> <laughs> it's still time, right? You still have your effort and time put into that. Yeah. So in terms of capital cost, I mean, it's actually been, we've been keeping it very, very manageable. Like definitely predominant costs is salaries. And then blockchain infrastructure is pretty reasonable. Legal probably being third legal reg and compliance. And I expect that'll continue to go up. But I think because I've got a pretty good understanding of the laws that it saved us a lot of time and money. So when it comes to spending crypto, I feel like some of the objections or hurdles has been one, the price fluctuation, but also two, just tracking your transactions from a user standpoint. And how would you see that affecting that? And how do you see that improving? Yeah, I mean, we had to build a bunch of custom tooling. So I'll give you an example. Like when somebody purchases a gift card, let's say with Bitcoin, we'll take this simple example. So somebody purchases a gift card with Bitcoin, we produce a quote, we lock in that rate, we've got a bunch of hedging happening and some liquidity that we have on various exchanges or hot wallets, warm wallets. And we basically hedge that volatility through various techniques. But we have the volatility of crypto. So we have to basically timestamp all these things, like when it gets confirmed, when it's actually transmitted. So we're keeping a record of basically a log of all the different state changes that happen within our within a given transaction. And then what we do, which took a few iterations, we had to do some pretty serious reporting so that we could actually spit stuff out and go, okay, what's our PL? on a transaction from start to finish, including like trade fees, network fees, and like all this stuff. And that's actually quite complicated, especially the network fee portion, because predominantly up until this point, most of the stablecoin transactions and fee markets have been on networks where the fees can fluctuate, not only in the amount of crypto asset needed to pay for a transaction to be confirmed, but also because of the volatility of the market, the dollar value of that at a given point in time. So in order to determine that, I mean, we basically having to track exchange rates plus everything across the board through that whole transaction flow in order to get an accurate picture in like USD, like what did this transaction cost us today? Because unfortunately, like we can't report taxes, let's say in Bitcoin in a lot of places or ETH. So we have to anchor to something. And the most dominant currency to anchor to at this point is US dollars. So that's basically how we do it. But I think absolutely like this is a big challenge, not only for investors, but for businesses. I mean, 
for a business, what we do is we essentially insulate them from that risk. So if somebody prices, let's say, a good or service, let's say they're saying, I need $100 US, we present a bunch of different options of currencies people can pay with. And at the end of the day, the business gets $100 US minus a small transaction fee. And then for us, basically removing the volatility risk as well as the risk of verifying the transactions and ease of use. We're trying to make it as easy for people to use this stuff as possible without needing to know all the mechanics of blockchain technology too, because there are a lot of weird edge cases that can kind of come up in a distributed system. So for a merchant, like the reporting is pretty straightforward, but for us internally, we had to build some pretty hardcore stuff that frankly probably could be a product on its own. But yeah, it's definitely one of the harder engineering problems that I've worked on. So when it comes to tracking transactions for tax purposes of the user or investor, do you think that is a hurdle or a roadblock right now that is kind of keeping users from using more products? Because like just me personally, when I go, I don't want to go sign up to all these different things or pay in certain things because then I feel like I got to track that, set up the wallet into the tax software and kind of, you know, what is your opinion there? Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, this is why we're so bullish on stable coins, because I think there's a case to be made that a US dollar, especially if it's a cash collateralized one like USDC, I mean, I'm going to you know, obfuscate some of the details around like how they're doing deserving, but let's assume that it's one for one. Yep. From a regulator's perspective, the discussions that we've been having is that some regulators are seemingly open to like institutions that are set up that are issuing stable coins that are set up as cash collateralized and registered as regulated financial institutions it's basically just a different form of a digital dollar or a deposit receipt so in this case that actually removes the concern around tax reporting because you can treat it like a dollar when you're dealing with other assets like bitcoin and eth and Solana, whatever, like all the other volatile currencies, it's definitely, I think, a deterrent to spending. And it's also just a lot of overhead, even if you're investing, like it's a decent amount of overhead to track those things. So do you see where a user has more of a segregated wallet where maybe they have one fiat to a stable coin type wallet that's only used for spending purposes and then the other where they hold their crypto portfolio? So this way it kind of segregates for tax purposes? Yeah, I think that makes it way easier. I mean, this is one of the interesting things when you look at stuff like Coinbase's card or some of the other currencies where they're like, hey, you can spend your crypto using you know, Visa. And you're like, you know, you're triggering a taxable event every time you do that. And the reporting infrastructure isn't there to do it. Like, So in a lot of cases, a lot of jurisdictions, that's what's happening. Our position is, and where I'm most excited, is where we see people are earning crypto and then using our service to actually pay for real goods and services, especially in markets where they can't get credit cards. They can't easily, they can't buy online. And that's where a lot of our use cases from people that are using crypto to buy gift cards. And where we've started to expand to is how do we leverage this technology to make stable coins kind of first class citizens that people can use to transact? I think that's where it gets interesting when you start to look at stable coins or fiat peg crypto assets as just money. And then there's a lot less of these challenges around UX, around volatility, around taxation. Like, And that's really what we're focused on here in Bermuda. We're working on setting up a company here and, you know, with support of the Bermuda government to help 
work on digitizing payments infrastructure and offer better financial services for for Bermudians. And the hope is that we can scale that out under a good regulatory framework and expand that to other jurisdictions as well. Because I think that's been one of the challenges. So, you know, I'm sort of a libertarian at heart where, you know, one of the reasons we got into this is we got exposed to all the problems that people have with inflation or like lack of trust in financial institutions in a lot of countries where they don't have foreign currency liquidity or don't trust the bank with foreign currency or there's corruption. Like this verifiable peer-to-peer cash transaction mechanism is really powerful where now anybody with internet connection or like a smartphone in their pocket can have a multi-currency bank account. Even in effect, like, you know, with the cases of things like USDC can effectively have an offshore USD bank account where the cash is collateralized in the United States, but they can still transact with these US dollars. And that's incredibly powerful. Now, the challenge there is like, how do you make sure that the risks, not only in terms of the you know, bank run risk and making sure that AML and terrorist financing and those things are all taken care of. Those are not an easy challenge to overcome, but the promise if we get there is that you can now enable the 3 billion plus people that don't have good financial services to leapfrog the traditional kind of patchwork of broken systems is something that's really, really efficient. And I think that's really what we're motivated by and what we're hoping to be able to pioneer out of Bermuda in a regulated way, as opposed to, you know, I think we're still a little bit of the Wild West, which I actually personally kind of love. But for mainstream adoption, I think it's really required that you need to have good investor protections as well as good AML and anti-terrorism financing policies and procedures in place. So, I mean, who is your target customer that utilizes your app the most? Yeah. So the most, I think I mentioned it briefly before. I mean, right now, majority of people that use our system are people that are earning in crypto, whether that's, you know, they've speculated or they're doing like play to earn platforms or they're earning, getting paid in like stable coin for either freelance gigging or even just now accepting USDC or DAI or some other ones. You know, we've seen interesting use cases where People are getting paid in stablecoin, particularly to hedge against inflation of their local currency. Because that was the other thing, you know, when you right now still, when you pay somebody, even using TransferWise and stuff and Western Union, it gets converted. So if I'm paying somebody in Nigeria, it gets converted to Nigerian Naira. And they don't even really want Nigerian Naira (laughs) because it's going through devaluing. And so we've seen like through this whole gift card proof of concept, seen interesting behaviors that I didn't even know existed where people are using gift cards as a store of value. They're using it as a remittance mechanism because they can hold it in USD instead of dealing with their own native currency. So how does that, can you kind of briefly walk us through the process in which to a user would utilize the app and also purchase the gift card? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. So the mobile app itself, you wouldn't know is a crypto wallet, but it's actually a non-custodial crypto wallet. That was kind of the point to try and make it so that crypto is basically just money and you don't really know. You can fund your account with crypto and in Canada, you can fund it through bank account transfer. We're working on additional bank accounts and potentially credit card. There's more fraud challenges with credit cards in particular, obviously. People are pretty familiar with that, as well as higher fees. So I think that's the other thing is 
it's important that it's cost effective and economical for people. And that's what's really interesting with some of the gift card stuff is that because we have a cashback mechanism, in a lot of cases, it's actually cheaper and faster than using traditional payment methods and remittance methods. So that's where we're starting to branch out to is the crypto audience has been really unique and new and that they're early adopters. Some of these people are are jumping through pretty significant hurdles to satisfy pain points around financial inclusion. Now it's like, how do we start to reach that mainstream curve? And part of that was making it as easy for people to onboard as possible while still trying to maintain some of the benefits of crypto in terms of self-custody and better security and more efficiency. So it's pretty easy to get going. I mean, you basically download the app, sign up with regular email password. We send you a magic link. So a, a link to verify your account. Behind the scenes, we're generating a private key, encrypting it on the device with like your email as well as our public key and a six-digit PIN code. We use it as a backup mechanism in case you lose your device or it gets stolen or you want to swap devices or whatever, you can recover your account. But our system, like nobody inside ours can actually crack any of your stuff. Or if our system was compromised, like the likelihood of somebody being able to gain access to funds is incredibly low just because it's so hard. Like everything's double encrypted and with stuff that only you should know or have access to. So it's really hard to get access. So we're trying to follow kind of best practices around information security in general, which is making sure you have something you have, something you are, and something you know. Those like kind of the old adage in security in terms of securing things. And so from that perspective, it's definitely better than bank grade security today. And then once you're in the app, you basically can fund it using the methods that we have available and then purchasing gift cards gets delivered to your email that's connected. Or you can send basically credit in the app to other Bedali users kind of in this remittance fashion and let them choose. So that's what we're starting to see is people using it as a peer-to-peer payments method or especially on the remittance side, enabling people to either purchase a gift card and get cash back and send that gift card to family member overseas. So they're effectively getting paid for remittance, which is pretty rare, instead of paying fees. And it happens instantly. And then they have more control over how the money is actually spent, because that's one of the things that through customer research we've noticed is actually a pretty big pain point for people that are earning overseas and remitting back to the Philippines or India or whatever, is that they, if they're just sending cash, like the cash doesn't always get used in the way that they wanted. Like I've heard stories of, you know, like, being gambled away or like, you know, people using on booze or whatever. And that's put yourself in a foreign worker's perspective. They left their family. They're working remotely, kind of lonely, working their butt off, usually in minimum wage jobs, saving up to send money back home. And then your family member at home just like blows the money that you worked your ass off for. I mean, I think that's it's that empathy. I think that's really important understanding where people are coming from. And so that's some of the use case we're seeing. Now here in Bermuda, because there's better regulatory framework, we're starting to roll out our payment system across the island so that people can actually do in-person payments and peer-to-peer. I mean, ultimately, our goal is to basically make a crypto-native Venmo that's well-regulated and kind of stablecoin native. We may include other digital assets over time, but right now it's very much focused on just trying to use crypto rails as a more efficient way of moving money around and opening up financial access for people. Well, one thing that comes to my mind right now is definitely, you know, what are like 
maybe the top three gift cards that people are utilizing across the globe or sending to different jurisdictions? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one is Amazon's like huge because you can basically purchase in almost every country or get things shipped to almost every country in the world. So Amazon's logistics network is incredibly powerful. And so this is one of the things that's been really interesting is like we have people who now for the first time can buy goods and services online and have it shipped to them. Traditionally, they couldn't get a credit card or debit card, so they can't buy online. And the beauty for us is because we're using crypto rails, if you're doing things right, you're basically guaranteed no fraud. From a transaction perspective, that's the whole point of these crypto networks is like if you're validating and waiting for enough confirmations and actually know what you're doing, like we know that that's not a fraudulent payment. So there's no risk of chargebacks or it being a stolen credit card number or whatever. I mean, you have to look at like, okay, did these funds come from potentially malicious activity, which we start to look at, but from the actual transactional nature, like it's basically fraud proof, which is huge. So we think there's a huge opportunity even for gift cards to be replaced by branded currency. So that's some of the other things that we're doing. You know, when you give the intro around more innovative gift card solutions and prepaid, that's one of the things we're working on here in Bermuda too, is being able to essentially issue branded currency structured like a gift card, but as effectively a digital programmable asset. And we think that that could lead to really interesting things later on down the road because a gift card is essentially just business credit. And if you start to tokenize and make business credit programmable, it could get really interesting in terms of having open markets for exchangeable business credit, real-time payroll, cross-border trade finance. Like you could imagine a world where, you know, Amazon employees are getting paid in Amazon coin, but then able to spend it at Starbucks or Walmart or McDonald's. And it's all just instantly exchangeable. And functionally that could happen. I think from a regulatory perspective, that's what we're trying to prove out could be done under a proper reg regime here in Bermuda. To answer your question around the other brands, I think like Walmart's a pretty big one. You know, basically a lot of these big these stores where you can either purchase online or in person, where you can get a bunch of goods and services, Home Depot, we see a lot of purchases foreign, like food and grocery, food delivery, Deliveroo in the UK, Uber, Uber Eats. So it's a pretty broad swath. I mean, I think you see generally like essentials kind of goes down the list to things that might be electronics or experiences or, I mean, people are really just using it as money because it's a more efficient if you have crypto it's more efficient to use us and typically lower cost or we're trying to make it lower cost than if you were to use a credit card now especially in cross-border payment or if you had to withdraw to a bank account and then were to use a credit card or debit card like a visa debit or something online later because even for me like that was one of the interesting things when i actually did the math it was like you know if i'm as a Canadian here in Bermuda, basically my credit card, you know, I get charged a 2% foreign conversion convenience fee essentially on purchases. And then I also have a kind of a crappy FX rate that they're giving me, which is 2 to 3%. So depending on the country, I might be eating like an extra 5%. Whereas for us, because we're able to distribute for, through more efficient networks, we're able to bring those costs down so that they are significantly lower than what you would normally pay. Well, do you have, uh, you mentioned a couple of times that you guys have uh, 
certain tokens on your platform right now and may expand in the future. You know, is the reason to expand because of cost or is it just actual use of the users? Use, yeah. I mean, I think like spilling a little bit of our internal thought process around how we prioritize currencies. I mean, the first and foremost is stable coins or fiat peg crypto assets on fast, low cost payment rails, because that's what's required in order for them to actually work on a more mainstream global scale. And even for just financially from a, a unit economics perspective, you can't be paying $20 in gas fees to the Ethereum network. It means people do, but that's a super high price to pay for convenience. So what's encouraging to me is like people are doing it. Just imagine what happens if it's all subsent transactions, right? And instant. So that's our primary focus. Second one being, you know, discussions around, because a lot of it's the same infrastructure, maybe for on more private or permission networks versus truly public, but central bank digital currencies is a hot topic right now. And so having discussions about that. And then I would say, you know, the other ones are the major market cap currencies like Bitcoin, ETH. We still have people that use them. You know, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it's definitely a convenience factor. And we know that that a percentage of people that are holding these assets will basically convert them because it saves them from going from Bitcoin to a stable coin or Bitcoin to a stable coin to bank account to credit card to Amazon. Instead, you just go Bitcoin to gift card to Amazon. And for some of the brands that we're starting to work with, it would be just direct, right? And then I think the final piece that we're looking at, what I'm really excited about is these platforms where you can earn in a native currency and then convert. I think the challenge we've seen there is that sometimes these earlier platforms lack some of the liquidity or or haven't gotten the same market traction yet. But things like Brave, like I think what they're trying to do at Brave with basic attention token is really interesting. I mean, if you can get paid for your attention and then convert that to something tangible or more useful to you, whether that's you're spending it in their ecosystem or converting to Bitcoin or converting to US dollars or converting to a gift card, like having that optionality is really great. And we're going to win over people if we can provide a great experience and a lower cost to doing it. So those are the things that we're interested in in terms of currencies and support. Well, with a high focus on stable coins, what is your position and what you're seeing in the regulatory discussion right now? Yeah, I mean, I don't know when you're planning on putting this out, this podcast, but I mean, right now, you know, I think it's probably likely we're going to see some regulatory action from the SEC that forces stablecoin issuers to either become deposit-taking institutions or money market funds. Circle, for example, they're the main issuer of USDC. While they're highly trusted compared to Paxos, Gemini, or Prime Trust, they're not a regulated financial institution. They are regulated in the sense that they have money transmitter licenses, but they don't have the same financial licensing that those other three do. Now, they've done a great job of being interoperable. And I think as a result of seeing huge market growth, especially in having a more trusted position compared to USDT or Tether, which is offshore and has had a lot of scrutiny around how they're reserving. And, you know, I won't go into that, but I think that's a major focus of regulators is like, 
how do we ensure that these reserves are actually, especially when they're starting to grow so quickly and get so big, how do we ensure that they're actually legitimate? And I think it's going to fall under one or two of those structures, whether it's deposit-taking institution or a money market fund. And I think if I were Jeremy Lair at Circle, I'd probably be hoping for the option to be a money market fund <laughs> because I think from a regulatory perspective, the burden is probably a little lower. But I think if I put my consumer hat on or a business that interops with these currencies, I would prefer to see them regulated more like a financial institution just because the reserve audits are a little bit better and there's a little more transparency there. I think, uh, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that, or at least my thoughts is crypto sometimes, you know, goes far out to the side and trying to innovate. And then it feels like maybe the last six months, we've kind of coming back into the sense of regulation, KYC, or what DeFi protocols will need to interact with certain institutions, which you'll have to know your customer. Kind of where do you think it all comes back to circle and what will happen in the future? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question. I think Sam Bankman-Fried from uh, FTX was mentioning the same thing, that if you're not thinking about regulation and being reg compliant, you're making a mistake in the space. And I think that's true, especially if you're an on and off ramp. You know, pretty loaded question, but I think what we're going to see is a kind of a bifurcation of the market where you're going to have things that are relatively anonymous and peer-to-peer stuff that's structured a bit more like sushi swap maybe. And then you're going to have stuff that's largely regulated and compliant like what Coinbase is doing, and maybe there's a premium for being on that platform because you have more recourse as a consumer or a user. I actually think that's a good thing. I think the one thing that I hope we don't do in the industry, and what even we've been kind of cautioning regulators, is there's a reason why we have problems with the existing financial system, especially in terms of financial inclusion. And if we just replicate the same stuff on slightly better financial rails, we're not really making any progress. We kind of just reinvented the wheel and like made some people richer, like did a bit of a wealth transfer, which sure might be great. But I think what I'm most interested in is, you know, how do we actually move the ball forward and make things a lot more efficient and improve financial access for people and ultimately give them more optionality. Because right now, the way the world's going is you basically can't participate and definitely can't compete in the world unless you have access to digital financial services, right? In order to do that, you are forced to trust multiple counterparties. Like you, There's no opt-out. You're basically at the whim of bank, credit card, their processes, their procedures. There's very little recourse as an individual, like if you're inadvertently or accidentally classified as a high-risk customer, you basically have no recourse. Now, the nice thing of what this stuff enables today is that you can actually start to choose on a spectrum of how much you want to trust another counterparty or not. And I think it's important that we maintain some of that because having the balance of how do you make sure malicious actors don't use that is a really tough challenge. But at the same time, there are definitely good reasons for people needing to have more open access, even if it is more expensive or clunkier or harder to use. And so I think it does feel a little bit right now like we are kind of 
coming full circle. And sometimes, honestly, I feel like we're kind of reinventing the wheel. But I think at least for us internally and the people that we're trying to deal with, we're trying to push the needle forward a little bit more than that. And do you think stablecoins are ultimately changing our traditional system? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I think at a minimum, I've joked about this with quite a few people. It's like, if nothing else happens, I hope of crypto, I hope Swift Network dies in a fire and gets replaced by some sort of crypto native solution. Because the fact that people still manually screw up wires, the fact that KYC AML is done mostly manually, and the fact that we have intermediary banks that block things or lose wires, and you don't even know if the person's received the funds until you call them or email them and hope they've received it. I mean, that just seems so archaic now. When if you're in crypto, you can scan a QR code, send it, and know exactly when they've received it, and whether it's been confirmed or not. And I think at a minimum, that's what I'd like to see. So I think stable coins, like the bare minimum is like, they are replacing that functionality and shipping away at it. And that is an improvement. But I think in terms of where it could go is that, you know, I, I think it's a lot of the utopic promise that some people have looked at is like, we could have really cool stuff like micropayments and, and fundamentally very different business models that emerge as a result of more efficient value transfer. That's not only secure, but also lower cost of peer-to-peer. How do you see the competitive landscape in the area that you guys are playing in? Yeah, that's a great question. I think like, you know, we have a few competitors in the direct, if we're looking at the very niche side right now where we started playing, which is this like crypto to gift card conversion area or crypto spending. BitRefill is probably a big one. BitPay has some stuff there in terms of crypto spending. I think ultimately where we see ourselves in the long term kind of competing is potentially being an all, a global debit rail, like a more open portal to more open global debit and maybe even credit. So in that way, I see us competing more with the likes of PayPal, Visa, MasterCard even potentially, and even some of the remittance providers. I mean, we're already kind of seeing early signs of that now where instead of you know, one of the best in class is still Western Union or TransferWise now or WISE. You know, it's definitely better than it used to be, but you're still paying like pretty reasonable amount of fees. And the crazy thing is now through our gift card ability, you can have somebody send money because they're basically purchasing business credit overseas in a fraud proof way. We have now consolidated the act of payment processing and remittance into one action and cut out all those middlemen. And so just has made it super efficient for being able to move money around. And this is still very early days. So I won't want people to get too, too excited yet. But I think like what we're seeing in the early signs of this is like right now we're starting to work with brands directly. So my shout out would be if there's any audience members that are running international brands in particular that want to expand their customer base and accept lower cost cross-border payments, then we should definitely, definitely chat. You can send me a note at ekriski at bedali.com or find me on Twitter at ekriski. I'm pretty easy to find. That's, I think, what's really going to shift shift things significantly is that being able to now purchase business credit and send it instantly and have it instantly convertible in a safe and efficient way is really going to change how these systems work because PayPal is just kind of this 
sort of similar in that way, but it's very much a gated ecosystem and their business model is predicated on fees. And what we think in the long term is that with crypto networks, we've seen this happen where basically users, there's very strong network effects compounded by the value accrual that happens on these networks, specifically in the native assets on these networks, whether it be governance tokens or things like that are paying gas or network fees or whatever. If the token economics are designed right, there's a lot of value accrual in the network. And so our long-term thesis is that, look, if we can build a network of people that are transacting more directly with each other on a common rail, then instead of paying payment processing fees to a bunch of gatekeepers, you could have a lot of the risk mitigated by the crypto network that acts as a clearinghouse and maybe some smart contracts in between and essentially reward people for providing liquidity at the edges of the network instead of having a lot of the value be captured by a bunch of people in this kind of hub and spoke model that we traditionally have in the Web2 world. And there's a lot of things that need to go right in order to get to that state. But ultimately, that's where we see this potentially going. And if we're successful, I mean, like, I think that network effect is really, really hard to compete with if you have a traditional payment processing business, because you essentially are cannibalizing your revenue and redistributing it to the users of the network. And that's ultimately what we want to do with our company in the long term. Because I think that's actually what's better for humanity is giving people that optionality and basically redistributing that value into a more peer-to-peer mutual credit-like market. How are you guys marketing or getting users on board? And kind of how do you get a network effect from starting as a startup project in the blockchain sector without maybe incentives or whatever may be? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question. It's something that we should be doing more of, to be honest, now. I think it's actually something we're starting to ramp up. We've been pretty under the radar, I think, the last few years. Partly that was refining the tech, make sure it actually works, getting a better understanding of who the, you know, product market fit stuff, as well as the technical build out. Most of our growth right now, like we've been growing basically 4x year over year the last few years. It's all been word of mouth growth. We've put a lot of emphasis into customer support. Because one, empathizing with people, I think, is really important. Gaining trust is really important. We put a lot of work into our customer support. So shout out to our CS team. But that, I think, is paying dividends. Now we're starting to look at you know alternative strategies like paid marketing content like this, being able to share a bit of our story, where we're coming from, where we're going, now that I think the technology is there. But I think part of it is kind of what you highlighted comes down to incentives as well. And so this is why... When we rolled out the mobile app, having the ability to earn cash back as an incentive, you know, we think only gets better. And we're thinking about how we can combine other incentives like high yield savings or if a business is getting paid, being able to put that capital to work. Those sorts of things, I think, get really interesting when you start to combine multiple incentives, not just incentives for spending, but also for saving and, and referrals and things like that. As we're seeing in the market, incentives work to get people on board, but it's just as important to have a great product where the people stick around. Yeah, I'm more concerned about retention. And that's actually <laughs> one thing that I'm really stoked with, which honestly has been shocking. Like our retention rate is about 50%. So people right now that use or engage with our platform end up making multiple purchases. But right now it's been ongoing. So since we started, we basically see a 50% retention rate, which is really important for me. Because I think it means that we have something that's actually solving a problem 
And that's why we didn't spend a lot of time on marketing yet, because I think making sure that we're not spending money on a leaky bucket. And I think now at this point, we're at a point where it makes sense to start to double down on that. So what is the, I don't think we covered, but the the team itself and kind of who's driving the project success? Yeah, we're a small team still. Part of that's because we automate, we've automated a lot. So our team is very engineering heavy. So we're really only five people right now. We're looking to expand and hire up. So we're, we raised a little bit of money. We bootstrapped a bunch of the company initially. We're already generating revenue, which is great and growing pretty well. Now we're raising a growth round coming out to expand some of the team members and put more into marketing and sales. Yeah, the predominant work is engineering. And then we have a little bit of support on CFO side and on the legal side outside of our outside council. And yeah, I'm still very much involved in lots of operational things and doing some programming and things like that, which is what I like to be doing. On the revenue side, how do you guys get paid? Do you get, is it on the transaction or part of it? Yeah, it's like a really small amount on the transaction. We have reduced that over time to A, be market competitive, but also, you know, at the end of the day, like this stuff in order for mainstream adoption needs to be as good or cheaper than traditional financial stuff. So really where we make the bulk of our revenue at the moment is on more like an affiliate structure almost. So basically a discount on gift cards. So it's a combination of that plus a little bit on the exchange rates. On the payment side, now that we're starting to roll that out, it's a small fee, very similar to BitPay. So free to accept payments. But if you want to withdraw to a different avenue, it's 1% transaction fee. Instead of us sitting in the middle, we're trying to basically push that to the edges and give people optionality. And then the other thing that we're working on is a high yield savings component kind of powered by some of the DeFi protocols. So that functionally is pretty close. We've already been testing it out internally, but we want to put it through regulatory paces here and with the Bermuda Monetary Authority. And so that would be the goal is to be able to give people, you know, maybe not Celsius level yields, but somewhere in the five to 10% range on US dollars or the local currency. You don't need to worry about all the mechanics. We're basically taking care of the plumbing. We capture a portion of that yield as well for dealing with the reg compliance, the plumbing for getting asset from A to B and tracking the yield, giving the reporting, like all that sort of stuff. So will you guys always utilize insurance for smart contract risk when doing those transactions or what happens you know, from user standpoint, the risk? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, talking totally transparently, I think a lot of the insurance options in the market are still very weak. We looked at a lot of them. So the interesting thing about Bermuda as well is it's, basically the, one of the reinsurance capitals of the world. My ultimate goal would be, can we get private insurance or even pooled insurance that meets or exceeds FDIC in the United States or CDIC in Canada? If we can exceed deposited insurance through private or through a captive-like structure, then I think that gets really, really interesting. Right now, it's still very hard to get insurance. Like Your audience may or may not be aware, but a even a bunch of the major exchanges have very poor insurance coverage compared to what the amount of assets that they actually have. And so what people are being forced to do is essentially self-insure and or disclose the risks to consumers and let them choose. And that's the approach that we're taking at the moment. I think the smart contract 
risks. Like if we look at things like, I believe it's Harbor, but a few of the more decentralized versions, when we've actually dug into them, I think, frankly, it's a lot of complexity to be staking. And there's still adverse effects where even if you have a legitimate claim, it could still not get paid out just because the enforceability of it is still a bit of a challenge. Like you have all these challenges around cross-border enforcing. Like I'll put it more plainly, like you've got a DAO of people that are staking tokens, providing liquidity to cover insurance. Ultimately, they all need to vote on whether your claim gets paid out. And so there's almost a disincentive to some extent where they don't really want to pay it out if it's a high enough claim. Like they might pay it out small claims because it needs to look like it's still a legit insurance fund. But if it's a large claim, like there's risk that even if you have a legit claim that it doesn't actually get approved for payout. And then who the hell do you go to to say like, no, you guys should have actually paid me out. <laughs> I mean, in a DAO-like structure, it's really tough. So I think I think it's very promising what's happening there, but I think all of those insurance groups are still fairly new that we don't yet feel comfortable utilizing them as the predominant insurance mechanism. Yeah, I think that there's still a lot of room for some other parties to come in and kind of be competitive in the space and have, offer more products there. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see even a, a longer standing insurance fund out of Bermuda even start to actually say, yeah, you know what, we're going to insure because we understand that the risks of all this are pretty low. The discussions I've had with groups here, though, is like really depends on what the premiums are, because even if the risk is low, I've learned been learning a lot more about the insurance space since I've been here. And it turns out some of these are just kind of money printing machines. Like there's a part of me that feels like insurance is sometimes a bit of a scam because you're like, <laughs> you know, you... <laughs> You pay these premiums and basically their risk models more or the policies sort of ensure that they should almost never pay out. And so it's really these black swan or adverse events, which is fine. But ultimately, I think, especially with crypto, like if the risks end up being pretty low or you're self-custodying, like maybe insurance doesn't really make as much sense. So... I mean, we're definitely paying attention to what's going on in the space. I'm hoping that we see a bigger insurer kind of step in and start to craft real policies because I think so far they've been tiptoeing in. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. You know, as we kind of come to an end here, is there anything that we didn't cover that you would like to leave off with? Oh, I think we covered a lot of ground, <laughs> actually. This is great. I have a question for you. I mean, I think, I guess, what are you most excited about within the crypto and even like the macro finance space? Like, I personally think that this technology is going to have really big implications on geopolitics and even may help reorganize the financial world order. So I think in the long term, I'm always curious when I talk with people, like, what are you most excited about? What do you think is the biggest implication of what's ha happening right now? Well, I guess like outside of just thinking about tokens and pricing of tokens going up, you know, I think just when it comes to when it comes to fraud protecting fraud, maybe smart contracts, the court system. I'm looking more like, I guess, 10 to 20 years out, right? When a lot more things can be enforceable because it can be verified on some type of ledger and it can't be changed. An example might be, I came out of the 10 years ago, I was buying distressed mortgages that came out of the 2000s era, right? And you know, one of the biggest problems was always the uh, payment string or historical payments 
when it went from one service provider to another and so forth. And, you know, anyone could always go in there and change them. And I kind of see where a lot of these records are put on some type of ledger where maybe the court system in that jurisdiction gets permission to access certain aspects of that. And when certain things don't happen, it's implemented right away. And there's not too many questions, right? I feel like we live in a society maybe where a lot of things get taken to court that it shouldn't be taken to court if the proper contracts were kind of put in place. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think one of the, when I explain blockchain to people that are new, say like really it's just a more efficient value transfer mechanism and record keeping mechanism. And the important piece is that the security, the cryptographic security that basically guarantees that whoever sent something actually did it is baked in at the core layer. Instead of right now, the way a lot of things work is you're dependent on every implementer of every different service to hopefully secure things properly. And that's why we end up with a bunch of hacks and data breaches and things like that. Because it turns out these systems are really, really complex. And so I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll start to see a lot of even traditional companies become like utilizing this technology for at least that basis, even if they're not necessarily decentralized, they're using it on a basis of, you know, having better protocols for sharing information that reduce fraud and improve auditability and reduce data theft risk and things like that. Because I think that's also a big, it's becoming a big problem and it's going to continue to become more and more problem as more and more people are putting more information online. Yeah, I think with social media, what we're seeing is slowly the ability to call people out and gain evidence into certain things that over time, that most of these things will be traceable and people like the information will be transparent to people and like, you know, wherever those expenses went or that nonprofit or whatever it may be. And uh, less people will be able to cheat the system. Yeah, which, you know, on the flip side, I mean, people go the you know the risk of this surveillance state as well so i think these are some of the the tension forces that <laughs> i think about a lot it's like how do we enable open access but also reduce surveillance risk how do we open up access and reduce fraud but also make sure that people aren't doing malicious things because you know and maybe it's not possible but i think to get it 100% right. But I think there are ways probably to at least significantly deter and still hopefully make things better for the majority of humanity in the future. I agree. Well, let's leave off there. If anybody wants to get a hold of you again, just kind of repeat or the Bedali app uh, or want to utilize it, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so you can look it up in the app store, B-I-D-A-L-I, Bedali.com is the main website social is all the same if you want to hit me up probably the best way is on twitter e krisky e-k-r-y-s-k-i shoot me a note happy to chat about anything especially related to this stuff <laughs> well eric thanks for coming out today i appreciate having you on thanks joe i really appreciate it too